Good morning. I'll ask again, since we ran a little late on the worship time, that you uh, defer at, in the next hour. Let, let uh, you know, give a little leeway to the folks that are teaching in Sunday school uh, in the next hour, so they'll have time to to do what they need to do. I'm not very good at cutting on the fly, so I'm going to do my best here to end on time. But uh, this morning, we come to the very first exhortation or command in the book of Romans. And it's a very important command. But that command actually isn't until the end of this passage. And Paul gives us some very uh, important things that we need to know before he gets to that command. Uh, we're going to look at, at chapter 6 of Romans, verses 1 through 11. And we've spent the last several weeks learning what Paul's epistle to the Romans says about our justification, about how we come to be declared righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we've seen that inside that package of our justification are many other marvelous and incredible gifts. As we've seen ever since Romans 1.18, the reign of death that came about through the first sin was an outworking of sin itself. Death spread to all men because all sinned, chapter 5, verse 12. And we've seen that sin had an all-encompassing power over us and over all of God's creation after the fall. We were powerless in ourselves to overcome either our own sin nature that enslaved us, or the reign of death that enslaved both us and everything around us. When Adam sinned, Paul says, we were all made sinners. Not merely in position, but in practice. And at best, we as unbelievers can uh, maybe rearrange our sins. But we cannot, until we come to Christ, make ourselves anything other than sinners. We can never make ourselves anything other than sinners and enemies of God. But Paul tells us that the death of Jesus overcame the reign of sin and the reign of death and replaced it with the reign of life and grace. We are granted victory over the dominion of sin because we have placed our faith in the one who gained that victory and we are now found to be in him. That phrase, in him, is so, so critical to understanding all that Paul is saying here. But the reign of life and grace isn't just a transformation of our position in the eyes of God. It's a transformation of our character, of our nature. In chapter 5, verse 19, Paul said, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The superabundant grace of God in Jesus Christ redeems us not only from the curse and penalty of sin, but from the power that sin has over us. And it is that freedom from the power of sin to which Paul now turns in chapter 6. He moves from the theology of justification to the theology of sanctification. And then he moves to exhortation. In Jesus Christ, not only have we been declared righteous in the eyes of God, we are being made righteous indeed. And the righteous, as in all things, the righteousness that God is imparting to us is his, not ours. Now, here's where we're going this morning, and uh, you hopefully got a handout if you wanted to have one that shows this flow of the passage so you'll kind of know where I am as we work through it. As always, there's nothing inspired about my outline. It's just my best effort to to uh, make sense of the organization of this passage. First thing I see in verses 1 and 2 is that Paul presents this question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's a very foundational question. And then in verse 3, he starts to answer it. And there are two parts to his answer in this passage. First in verse 3, we died to sin through our participation in the death of Christ. And then secondly, we live to God through our participation in the resurrection of Christ. Verses 4 through 10. 
we'll see in that second section, verses 4 through 10, that Paul talks about the goal of our participation in Christ's resurrection, which is newness of life. And then we'll see that he explains how we enter into that newness of life. First, by being freed from slavery to sin, then by being freed to live to God. After all of that theology, Paul then comes to an exhortation in verse 11. Reckon or consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's where we're going this morning. I'm going to ask you all to stand as I read the passage. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be, uh, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Dear Father, we ask that you would show us through this wonderful passage the basis of your call to us to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to you so that we may truly walk in newness of life and that in doing so we may glorify your name. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul begins this passage with a very strong tie-in to the last thing he said in the previous passage. In chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, he said, And the law came in that that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he begins chapter 6 with a hypothetical question that looks directly back to that statement. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? As with many of the questions that Paul has already raised and shot down in previous chapters, He likely anticipated that this one would be raised by the Jews in Rome, who saw that uh, they they saw the free gift nature of that which he was proclaiming as an open door to licentiousness, that is, to just sinning uh, without constraint. This understanding, uh, I think, that he's he's especially targeting, targeting the Jews is in keeping with the connection he just made between the law of Moses and the increase of sin, a connection that was. certainly directed toward his Jewish audience. But I think far more important than pinning down the source of this question in verse 1 is that we understand why Paul found it necessary to address it as he has rather than simply to dismiss it. Because really this passage is the answer to that question. Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? There are those who would say that if we're rightly presenting the gospel, such a question could never be directed toward us. But I believe that a true presentation of the gospel demands that we answer this question. 
I'm going to read in a moment an excerpt for you from an excellent article by Michael Horton called The Fear of Antinomianism. First, I'll define that big word for you. Antinomianism is the heretical teaching that says that we as Christians are not subject to any kind of law uh, and, and we're really free to act as we please because that's the way grace works. In short, antinomianism is a big word for the very kind of thinking that is alleged in chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans. The Catholic Church accused Martin Luther of antinomianism because of his proclamation of justification by grace through faith alone. George Whitfield was accused of antinomianism for a straightforward proclamation of grace. Many other faithful preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ have been accused of the same thing. (laughs) Indeed, in his commentary on this passage, Romans 6, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in this way, then you'd better examine your sermons again, and you had better make sure that you're really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. Now here's what Dr. Horton says about how Paul responds in this passage to the same essential accusation that's being made against him here. Dr. Horton says, what's striking is that Paul answers antinomianism not with the law, but with more gospel. In other words, antinomians are not people who believe the gospel too much, but too little. They restrict the power of the gospel to the problem of sin's guilt, while Paul tells us that the gospel is the power for sanctification as well as justification. The danger of legalism becomes apparent not only when we confuse law and gospel in justification, but when we imagine that even our new obedience can be empowered by the law rather than by the gospel. The law does what only the law can do, reveal God's moral will. In doing so, it strips us of our righteousness and it makes us aware of our helplessness apart from Christ And then it also directs us in grateful obedience. No one who says this can be called an antinomian. However, it is not a matter of finding the right balance between law and gospel, but of recognizing that each does different work. We need imperatives, and Paul gives them. But he only does this later in the argument after he has grounded sanctification in the gospel. I love that statement. (laughs) The notion that the freeness of the gospel opens the door for us to sin more arises not from a false understanding of grace, but from an incomplete understanding of grace in the gospel. I said last week that many Christians grievously diminish the transforming value of God's gift to us in Jesus Christ because they attribute to it the power and purpose to justify, but not the power and purpose to sanctify. It is a clear understanding of the latter, the power and purpose of the gospel to transform us in practice as well as position that solves the problem of antinomianism. So the answer is not more law, it's more grace. And that's exactly where Paul goes in this passage. After presenting the question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase, he answers it first with a very strong negative. In fact, the strongest negative available in the Greek language. May it never be. He's used that same strong negative several times. He used it twice back to back in Romans 3, verses 3 and 3 through 6. And then he also used it in Romans 3.31. Uh, Having made it very clear then that he considers the question in 6.1 to be seriously an error, Paul then counters with a question that masterfully sets the stage for everything he's going to say through verse 11. He says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now what does it mean to die to sin versus to live in sin? Well, later in this chapter, Paul is going to 
explain death to sin in terms of slavery and release. Throughout chapter 6, Paul treats our death to sin as a complete and decisive termination of the power that sin had over us. That is, of its power to determine our actions, our decisions, and the course of our lives. To die to sin is to be freed once and for all from the control that sin has over us. But I believe that what Paul is intending by the phrase died to sin goes even further than the idea of freedom from control, from the control of sin. He just said in chapter 5, verse 21, that whereas sin formerly reigned in death, now grace is to reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our union with Christ not only frees us from the power of sin, it transplants us from the domain or reign of sin into the reign of grace and life. In Christ, we have died to sin in a number of ways. We've died to the curse of sin, which means we are no longer condemned. We've died to the power of sin, which means sin no longer controls us. And we've died to the dominion of sin, to the reign of sin, which means that the course of this world is no longer the course of our lives. And the domain of sin is no longer where we live. Our death to all of these things means that they no longer define who we are or what we do. In verse 3, Paul begins to explain how we died to sin, and the heart of that explanation is that we participated in the death of Christ. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. This is one of the central passages in in all the Bible regarding what is pictured in the physical ceremony of baptism that we do behind that screen periodically. Water baptism is, among other things, a public declaration of our unity with Christ in his death, and I believe also in his resurrection. It is a declaration of the enablement and responsibility that that unity imparts to us to walk in newness of life, a life lived to God. But we would be seriously in error to conclude that the physical ceremony of baptism is that which actually accomplishes the unity of the believer with Christ in his death and resurrection. The physical ceremony doesn't accomplish those things, it pictures them. As we discussed previously when we saw what Paul said in the last few verses of Romans 2 about the true circumcision, none of the memorials or physical ceremonies presented in either testament is treated as efficacious in and of itself. That is, the ceremony doesn't cause a change in the person or in the person standing with God. Now, what does Paul mean in Romans 6, 3 when he says we have been baptized into the death of Christ? Well, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead and show you some verses that, that go to the next point, just so you can see the language that he uses that kind of elaborates on or explains that idea of being baptized into the death of Christ. In verse 3, he says we've been baptized into Jesus' death. In the first part of verse 4, he says we have been buried with him through baptism into death, And then in verse 5 he says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also, shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now I take that phrase, united with him in the likeness of his death, to be synonymous with baptized into his death. Paul uses that same word that's translated in the likeness of to describe the incarnation of Jesus in the great passage about the humility of Christ in Philippians 2. Most of you are familiar with this passage. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of man, of men, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this wasn't smoke and mirrors. Jesus didn't just look human. Indeed, if we consider the ideal human to be the one who most perfectly fulfills God's design for humanity, then Jesus is more human than you and I are. Jesus participated fully in our humanity. He was and is forevermore the preeminent human being. Now, I reference that passage in Philippians to make this point. If we say that our participation in the death of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection is merely figurative or allegorical, we're seriously understating a very important point. I believe Paul is saying that by the miraculous and time-transcending working of God, we were there with Jesus at the cross. Paul says in Romans 6.6, that, it's not in there, but he says, our old self was crucified with him. That isn't just a word picture, it's a spiritual reality. And we'll get to that verse a little bit later. The death of Jesus Christ at the cross occurred in space and time. That is foundational to all that we believe. But the death and resurrection of Jesus transcends time. Just as surely as we sinned in Adam when he sinned, we died in Christ when he died. We don't have to comprehend how that happened to accept that it happened because God says it did. One of the most life-changing discoveries for me as a believer is to learn uh, has been to learn that every good thing that's true of us as children of God is true only because it was first true of Jesus Christ. All of it. Our spiritual and personal union with Jesus is the single most defining thing that is true of us as believers. Because all that's true of us as believers, now and in eternity, is wrapped up in our identification with him. Paul says in Colossians 3.3, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He means that in the most absolute and pervasive sense in which it can be taken. By the way, one of the reasons I strongly believe in baptism by full immersion in water is because I believe God intended the ceremony to picture the reality as fully as the picture allows. When the believer is completely immersed in the water, the picture is that of complete identification with Jesus Christ in his death and burial. When the believer is raised out of the water, it's a picture of his complete identification with Jesus in his resurrection. And it's a vivid reminder that we are raised to walk in newness of life. That brings us to verses 4 through 10 of this passage, which talk about our participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, and just first I want to point out, this is, this is kind of the outline of verses 4 through 10. We're going to go through this piece by piece. In verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we have been buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death. But in the second part of verse 4, he makes it clear that our unity with Christ in his death isn't the end of God's plan of redemption. The purpose clause in verse 4 is, In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. That's the point. Verse 4 tells us just where Paul is going with the rest of this passage. That is, he's laying the foundation for the exhortation to every believer to walk in newness of life. That's what the passage starting in verse 12 is going to be all about, that we'll look at next time. We are to truly enter into and to abide in the new life for which we were redeemed. And he'll get to the exhortation part of chapter 6 shortly. But first, in verses 5 to 10, he explains how we enter this newness of life. And there are two things that he says. First, in verses 5 through 7, 
We enter newness of life by being freed from slavery to sin, and then we enter newness of life by being freed to live to God. That's first by our participation in Christ's death and then by our participation in his resurrection. We who have been freed from the, from the death of uh, freed in the death of Christ from slavery to sin are freed in the rex- resurrection of Christ to live to God. Now verses uh, and I'm, I'm going to put this up. I don't want to scare anybody with too much structure here, but but this uh, this I think it was pretty illuminating for me when I saw these two halves uh, of verses five through ten set side by side. There's uh, a structural parallelism going on here. Each of the two parts has three pieces, an if statement, a knowing statement, and a for statement. Hopefully you can see that up here. And the English translations nicely divide the verses to perfectly reflect this layout. Verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death... Certainly we shall also in the likeness, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And then in verse 8, he picks up with that idea he just stated in verse 7. He says, now if we have died with Christ, We believe that we shall also live with them. You can see how five and eight are very similar statements, right? And then he says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin, but once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. I'm going to show this a slightly different way that highlights portions of verse 6 and verse 9, because I want to point out that that from which we have been freed is not quite the same as that from which Jesus has been freed. There's a different focus. Verses 5 through 7 are talking about what happened to us. Verses 8 through 10 are talking about what happened to Christ. And there's a different focus. Our unity with Christ in his death and resurrection freed us from sin. But Christ's resurrection freed him from death. As we saw earlier, before we were redeemed, we were enslaved to sin in three ways. To the power of sin, to the curse of sin, and to the reign of sin. But Jesus was never enslaved to the power of sin. Nonetheless, because he took upon himself the full weight of the guilt for our sin, he was for a time enslaved to the curse of sin, which is death. But that slavery was forever put to an end when he was raised from the dead. Thus, according to verse 9, death no longer is master over him. Paul talked in chapter 5 about the reign of death, and I believe that reign extended even to Jesus Christ during the 33 years that he walked among us. It wasn't only during the three days that he was in the grave that he was subjected to the reign of death. He lived and walked among us, surrounded as we are, by all that has been corrupted by the curse of death. He was born to die in our place to suffer the curse for us so that that curse would be removed from us. The curse of death was upon him, I believe, from the moment he took on humanity. Not because he sinned. He didn't. But the curse of death was on him because we sinned. When I spoke a couple of weeks ago on Romans 5, 12 through 14, and I got to the part in verse 12 where it says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, I had it in my mind at that point that there was one man who was excluded from the spread of death to all men, and that was Jesus Christ, because he didn't sin. But after looking harder at this passage, I think that assessment might miss the mark some. And it's clear from both Testaments that Jesus never committed a sin and was never by nature a sinner. He is both fully man and fully God. 1 John 3, 5 says, In him there is no sin. 
but the measure by which he took our sin upon himself is absolute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't pretend to be able to get my hands around the idea that that God the Father made Jesus to be sin on our behalf. But I accept it as true because that's what God says. And it is most certainly worthy of my thoughtful and fearful attention, just as it is yours. Jesus voluntarily placed himself under the dominion of death because he came for that purpose. But his death destroyed death's dominion, and his resurrection proved his freedom from death's dominion. His freedom from the curse of sin secured our freedom from that curse in him once and for all. Verse 5, Paul says, Just as we were united with him in the likeness of his death, so we shall certainly be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. In the parallel statement of verse 8, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now both those statements are future looking, right? They're both, we shall. And I believe they're both pointing to the promise of our bodily resurrection. Just as he was raised, so also we shall be raised. And once again, that's not some kind of esoteric metaphor. (laughs) It's as real as it gets. If you're one of the redeemed, if you are one of the redeemed, it is far more certain that you will one day be raised imperishable than it is that you'll spend another day in that mortal body. And that certainty is founded entirely on the fact that God has made you a participant in the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Not just in the sense that he's the first fruits and we are the latter fruits, but more fundamentally, in that we are in Christ. His death has become our death and his resurrection has become our, our resurrection. I know I'm saying that several ways. There's a reason for the repetition. That identification with Christ and his death and resurrection is absolutely fundamental to what Paul's getting at here. But we'll see shortly that Paul raised the forward-looking aspect of of our resurrection in order to get to the implication for the here and now. Again, verses 5 through 7 and 8 through 10 both start with a similar idea, that if, or rather because we have been united with Christ in his death, we believe with certainty we shall also be united with him in his resurrection, and we shall live with him. But after those first statements the two parallel sections move to different focuses. And there's an important sequence from verse 7 to verse 10. So I'm going to get beyond the parallelism here. And we're going to take these two declarations again in the order in which Paul presents them. Verses 5 through 7, after saying that our union with Christ and the likeness of his resurrection is just as sure as our union with him and the likeness of his death, Paul gives us that first knowing clause. And he focuses here on the death of Christ, not on his resurrection. He says, he clarifies further here what it means to be dead to sin. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What does he mean by our old self and our body of sin? Uh, Literally, old self is the old man. And that's who we were by nature before we were saved. But consistently in Paul's letters, that former sin nature still maintains a connection with us, especially with our physical bodies. 
The death and corruption and decay to which the physical realm was subjected after the fall so infected our physical bodies that Paul sees an ongoing crucial connection between those bodies and the sinful rebellious nature that defined who we were before we were redeemed. Our deliverance from the sin nature that's tied to our mortal condition this side of heaven won't be fully realized until we are bodily raised from the dead and these corrupt bodies are transformed into heavenly bodies, imperishable bodies. But that deliverance to which we are destined is in another sense, in a critically important sense, already true of us here and now. Paul says in verse 7, For he who has died is freed from sin. That's present tense. We have already been freed from the power of sin through our union with Christ in his death. And the only way to rightly understand uh, how Paul presents this critical truth is to see it as already true and not yet true at the same time. This already and not yet perspective uh, is foundational to Paul's theology of sanctification. Now let me explain. First, an example. We have already been declared righteous when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We are righteous in the eyes of God. That's justification. But we are in the process of being made righteous in practice day by day. So there's a not yet element to the gift of righteousness. Both are true at the same time. Here in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, Paul's essential point is that our deliverance from the power of sin has already been accomplished. It was accomplished at the cross. Our old self was crucified with Christ. And thus, we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, he who has died is freed from sin. And even though our mortal bodies still have life and breath, they're dead. The the old man is dead. We have already died with Christ and in Christ. Uh, And because Jesus didn't stay dead, we didn't stay dead. We are even now freed from the power and dominion of sin. Now, having established in verses 5 to 7 that our death with Christ frees us from the power of sin, Paul goes on now in verse 8, and he restates the fact of our death with Christ in order to set up a second declaration. And his point here is that Christ's resurrection freed him from death to live to God and thus frees us from death to live to God. Even though verses 9 and 10 talk about what is true of Christ because of his resurrection, it's clear from verse 8 that Paul wants us to conclude something about what's true of us. As we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He will never again have any experience with the curse of death. He's done with death. And because we are in him, his freedom from that curse frees us as well. And that has amazingly powerful relevance to us today. If we're freed from the curse and power of sin, that has amazing ramifications for how we live now. We'll get there in a minute. But Finally, in verse 10, Paul tells us what the life of Christ is now about in order to pave the way for telling us what our life is to be about. He says, for the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, that wording of the phrase, died to sin, is uh, just like the wording in the, with which Paul started this whole discussion back in verse 2, when he said, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus' death to sin is once for all, and it is only in him through our union with him in his death, that we can be said to have died to sin. And the second half of verse 10 also ties back to verse 2. The life that he lives, that Jesus lives, he lives to God. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We're called to live a different life. The life that Christ lives to God. His reasoning, Paul's reasoning here is really very straightforward. We died to sin because he died to sin and we are in him. In the same way, we shall live to God because he lives to God and we are in him. All that defines us proceeds from what's true of him. Again, the already and not yet idea is of great importance in understanding Paul's argument. Our resurrection is still future. But the already part is that we who have died to sin and who are identified with Christ in his resurrection are free right now to enter into the newness of life that will be fully realized when we get our resurrection bodies. That brings us to the last verse of this passage, which is Paul's exhortation or command to us. This, amazingly, is the first command in the whole book of Romans. And the command is for us to reckon or consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to consider or reckon ourselves, uh, to, to reckon something to be true? And is that any different than believing it? That's, again, a very important idea in Paul's epistles. There are a couple of other verses, there are several other, but there's two I want to point out that use the same Greek word that's translated consider or reckon here in 611. In Philippians 4, 4 through 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And the entire phrase, let your mind dwell on, comes from one Greek word, and it's the same word that's in this verse. Reckon, consider these things. In Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. The shared connotation of this word in those verses is to count something as true and to dwell upon it as true. With the outcome that one's view of things and one's actions are dramatically impacted by that mental accounting process. It's possible to believe something, indeed, to be very sure of it, but to lose sight of it, to neglect to engage in this process of counting it to be true on a regular basis. And you know what happens if we neglect to reckon the truth to be true day, day by day? we start to act as if we don't believe it. Reckoning is the cure to being hamstrung by distraction from the truth. It's about keeping God's version of reality at the forefront of our thinking at all times. Now, we live in a culture that fosters uh, mental passivity <laughs> big time. We're bombarded by input by sensory and propositional input at a dizzying rate. Think for a moment about the difference between the amount of information to which you are exposed every day and that to which people were exposed back in the day when there was no Internet, no cell phones or smartphones, no TV. How about even further back when absolutely nothing that people used in their daily lives required electricity to work? when the only music that you could hear was live music, when the only conversation you could have was face-to-face? -face. Has all our technology made it easier or harder to actually choose and control what we're thinking about at any given moment? I think it's pretty clear it's made it harder by a lot. And what percentage of all this mass of information that's flooding us would fall under the category of truth as God defines truth. Not very much. 
So what does that imply about the nature of the assignment to count the truth to be true, to reckon it to be true? Well, for, for one thing, it ain't going to happen unless we're intentional about it. It won't happen passively. Secondly, it demands that we spend time studying and meditating on the Word of God. God's Word is the only reliable source of the truth that we are commanded to be constantly reckoning as true. You won't find that truth anywhere else. What is it that you're commanded to count to be true in verse 11, chapter 6 of Romans? That you are right now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here again is Paul's argument in a nutshell. Because Jesus died to sin and was raised from the dead to live to God, you who are in him have died to sin and are alive to God. On that basis, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, count to be true that which is true of you because of what God has done in Christ. Verse 11 is vitally important for, and I want you all to bear with me here. I know we're we're running out of time, but it's vitally important for understanding how sanctification happens. Again, this is the first command in this epistle. And it isn't a command to perform any particular action. He's about to get to those. It's a command to count something as true. And it's built upon all the theology that Paul has presented up to this point in the book. It took him six and a half chapters to get to this exhortation. And he hasn't even yet gotten around to telling us how to act. He's telling us what to count as true. Why? Because until you know what's true, you cannot know how to act. And until you count the truth as true, you will not be motivated to act as you must. You must know that. We must know that about how God sanctifies us. All that Paul's going to go on to say in the rest of chapter 6 about submitting the members of, of our body as slaves to righteousness is founded upon what he has just said about our unity with Christ in his death and resurrection, not the other way around. It is not our obedience that unites us with Christ. It is the established fact of our unity with Christ that equips and compels us to obey. And it is our continual awareness of that unity that actually produces grateful obedience. I wanted to talk about Ephesians 4, but I'm going to skip it just in a nutshell. Paul spends three chapters presenting the theology of what we have been given in Christ before he gets to the the exhortation in Ephesians 4, therefore walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I've said it before and I'll say it again, doctrine is not a four-letter word. Just count the letters. In one video segment in a series called The Truth Project, R.C. Sproul talks about the catastrophic death of doctrine in the modern church. He rightly laments that the church has determined to bypass the mind on the way to the heart, and it does not work that way. The result is that the church has become weak and largely ineffective. The church is weak in its resolve to live unto God because it does not know what that life is or from whence it comes. Sound biblical doctrine is the bedrock of the Christian life. If you do not know who God is and what He has given to you in Christ, you will not walk in a manner worthy of His calling. So what does that imply about the importance of knowing the Word of God? It cannot be overstated. Can you possibly set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth if you don't know what the things above are? Of course not. How do you come to know the truth and to be reminded of it so that you, instead of losing sight of it, you count it as true moment by moment? There's only one way. 
disciplined study of and meditation on the Word of God. The last point, and I'll be quick about it. The last thing in this passage is in the last phrase, in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is utterly impossible to overstate the importance of that phrase. (laughs) As I've already said, every eternally good thing that is true of you is true only because it was first true of Christ and you were in him. You are free from the eternal power, uh, eternal penalty of your sin because he died in your place and bore that penalty upon himself and you are in him. You're free from the power of sin because he won that freedom in your place and you are in him. You've been given this newness of life because he was raised from the dead and you are in him. You are alive to God because he is alive to God and you are in him. You want to know how to get, how to know everything you'll ever need to know about you and about this world? Get your eyes off yourself and off the world and fix them steadfastly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And that's it. Father, give us eyes to view all things through this radically different lens that Paul has so diligently set before us. Make us to know with certainty that we have died to sin with Christ and that just as He has been raised to live to you, so we in Him have been raised to walk in newness of life, a life lived unto you alone. And when we forget your command to daily and constantly count these things as true, don't let us remain in that state of neglect, Father. Convict us and convince us to reckon as true that which you have declared to be true, that we may live indeed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.